I read a story about a devastated-looking man who went and he knocked on the door of a woman in his community who was really well-known for her charity and her generosity. Please, ma'am, he said as she opened the door, can you help this poor, tragic family who is down the block? You see, the father just lost his job, and his wife is too sick to work, and this family is about to be turned out onto the cold streets unless somebody can pay their rent. She said, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. May I ask who you are? He said, I'm their landlord. (laughs) That sort of calloused and indifferent attitude toward the poor and toward the suffering and miseries of other people is at the heart of the text that we're going to look at together this morning. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 16? We're going to continue in our series that we've been doing, that we've been calling Outsiders, as we study through the teachings of Jesus and the gospel of Luke. And yes, we've made our way all the way to chapter 16 now. I want to read the text for us together. And if you've been at Apostles for a while, you know that I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind standing here to give honor to God and to God's word as we consider it together. And then I promise I'll let you sit for the duration of the message. But I want to read the text, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man, this is Jesus speaking, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple, the color of royalty, and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water And cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We've all seen him before. Lazarus, holding a sign on our freeway off-ramp, 
laying underneath a makeshift shelter in our parks, laying on a bench at the beach, maybe even finding shade under the eaves of our church, or perhaps in a motorhome in our parking lot. He's poor, dirty, oftentimes sick, almost always hungry. Yeah, the half-eaten piece of fruit or granola bar in your car looks delicious to Lazarus. The food that you're carrying out in your to-go bag from the restaurant looks delicious to Lazarus. There are many Lazaruses in our city. Without exaggeration, I can tell you that nearly every week, my son Judah, my six-year-old, says to me, Dad, who are those people? What do they want? Why don't we help them? Why don't I help them? Why don't we help them? They probably don't want our help, we say. Or there's organizations in our community for people like that. Or they probably brought it upon themselves. Or they'll probably use our money for drugs and drink. How do we know? It's not like we know them. Maybe that's the problem. We don't know them. And unfortunately, oftentimes we don't care to know them. On one level, this parable is a stinging rebuke that almost all of us in the Western church need to hear from our Lord Jesus. Because at best, we're calloused and we're indifferent toward the poor. And at worst, we actually despise them. We wish they'd pack up their things and they'd take their problems elsewhere. And if not, then we kind of wish that the police would go and pack their things for them and send them along elsewhere. Like the rich man, we won't even give them the scraps from our table. And quite honestly, we don't even like having them sitting at our gates. Pretty heavy intro, right? (laughs) Sort of a sad, convicting introduction, but I think it's fitting with this text here this morning. Maybe this would be a good time, though, to change the atmosphere a little bit, to pause and say to the dads this morning, Happy Father's Day. We're blessed that you're here. Now, I know what you're thinking, church. Really, Pastor Daniel, this is the best text you could find in the entire Bible for Father's Day? Come on, pastor, there's got to be something else in there. Maybe it's not the best text of all the texts for Father's Day. But you know what? At the end of the day, the best thing that could happen to a dad on Father's Day is that they go to church, they hear the teaching of Jesus, and they leave here more like him than they came. And if there's an area, a glaring area of disobedience in the Western Christian church, With all of our prosperity, perhaps it is our attitude toward money and our attitude toward the poor. But again, dads, thank you for being here. Just the fact that you're in church today says a lot. It's a big step in the right direction. Did you know that that Father's Day is typically the lowest day for church attendance throughout the year? And on the flip side, Mother's Day is the most highly attended day of church throughout the year. Why is that? Well, it goes something like this. When Mother's Day comes around in May, the family says, Mom, what do you want to do for for Mother's Day? And she says, 
I don't care about presents. I don't care what restaurant we go to. All I want is for my husband and all of my children to come to church with me. And so the family, whether they really want to go or not, acquiesces and goes with mom to church. But you get to Father's Day, and the family says, Dad, what do you want to do for Father's Day? And he says, I want to watch the U.S. Open of golf today. (laughs) Or I want to eat good food. Or I want to sleep in. Whatever I do, just don't make me go to church and waste half of my Sunday. But dads, you're here this morning. God bless you for that. We're thankful for you. We're proud of you. And we're here to encourage you in your faith and encourage you as you lead your families. So back to our heavy text. Have you ever thought about how tough it must have been to go to Jesus's church every week? Now, I know Jesus didn't have church the way we have it at this point. He was establishing the church. But what I do mean is to sit under this rabbi's teaching week in and week out. Did you know it was more likely to leave Jesus's church services feeling convicted and crying than it was to be laughing and lethargic? And the reason for that is because Jesus didn't pull punches. Jesus was here to talk about the kingdom of God and to usher it into the world. And guess what? Our world is filled with a lot of problems because our world is filled with a lot of sin and Jesus was here to make all of that right. And that was going to cause a lot of stinging rebukes to come out of his mouth. So here in Luke 16, we have on one hand a rich man and on the other hand a poor man. I warned you several weeks ago that Jesus talks a lot about money. When I did, we were looking at the parable of the rich fool. Also, you should know that we skipped over this, but at the beginning of chapter 16, the chapter we're in today, Jesus has another parable about money. And now, here we are with the rich man and Lazarus. A lot of teaching about money. But don't worry, this sermon's not going to primarily be about money And also, don't worry, there's no surprise offering coming at any point during this service. Dads, you can keep your wallets secure in your pockets. But the reason why this text won't be mainly about money is because at a deeper level, Jesus isn't just talking about rich and poor, wealth and poverty. Let me explain what I mean. Let me set this parable into a broader context. Back up with me a couple verses. Luke 16, starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Scary but true. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus here, you need to know, is preaching about the good news of the kingdom of God and the way that it converts or changes people's hearts to be more like God's hearts. And the audience that Jesus is really interested in talking to is the Pharisees here in verse 14, who, as we just read, were lovers of money. And although they justify themselves before men, meaning that they appear to be righteous in the eyes of people, 
Jesus was telling them straight to their face, God knows your heart. God knows that that facade of righteousness that you're putting up is actually just that. It's a facade. And underneath that is greed. Underneath that is lust. Underneath that is self-righteousness. Underneath that is pride. Underneath that is a lot of things that actually make God's stomach turn. And so Jesus is interested in actually speaking to their hearts as he's preaching the gospel because God's not fundamentally interested in us just cleaning up the surface of our lives. No, 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 no. The gospel is so much deeper than that. The gospel of the kingdom of God is actually about God giving you a new heart, which in turn cleans up our lives. The story of the rich man and Lazarus then is just one more of many different illustrations for us of what life looks like apart from being changed by the gospel of God's kingdom. See, these Pharisees who were lovers of money needed a heart change because if they had had an encounter with the living God and they had experienced that heart change, then they would have looked at a man like Lazarus the many Lazaruses in their community. And rather than being indifferent and calloused, turning their eyes away, maybe even despising these people, no, 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 no. Rather than that, they would have actually been moved with compassion. They would have cared. They would have wanted to help. See, the Pharisees and the Jews in general had a hard time understanding the gospel of God's kingdom because the gospel is not what you would expect. The gospel takes everything that makes sense in this world and it turns it upside down. All of the things that we value as human beings get reversed through the gospel. We value power. We we value money. We value prestige. We value things like that. And God says, none of that matters. God says, what matters to me is people who are poor in spirit, people who are humble and broken, People who acknowledge their weakness before me because people like that will actually turn to me in dependence and in faith. And all of a sudden I'll take their weakness and I'll I'll give them strength and I'll take their poverty and I'll give them true riches in heavenly places. This is why the message of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1.23 is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's like no matter who you are, in and of yourself, you hear the gospel and you go, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) That doesn't add up. And that's why we need a work of God in our hearts to make the gospel sensible and attractive. The gospel turns everything in this world upside down. And so today, even though, again, on one level, we're talking about money, I want us to look at five things that this parable teaches us and teaches the Pharisees about the gospel. Number one, you ready? Number one, the gospel looks down its nose at no one. The gospel looks down its nose at no one. Weird expression, right? Looks down its nose. What do you mean, pastor? What that means is when you look down your nose at someone, it means that you think that someone is less important than you, or you think that something is not good enough for you. Let me illustrate this for you. I remember back when I was in high school, um, I played a lot of sports, but a sport I didn't play was golf. And me and another one of my kind of jock friends, we said, let's go hit balls at a driving range. 
So we went to a, a nice driving range. We didn't really know the difference, but we went to a really nice country club and we showed up and we went to the driving range. And on this driving range, you've got golf pros out there doing lessons and all these guys that are dressed super nice with these really great looking bags and clubs. And here come me and my 16 year old buddy stumbling in. We don't know how to play golf. We don't look the part. We're not wearing what you're supposed to wear. We were sharing one bag of clubs and it was an old bag of clubs, you know, probably like wood clubs. Okay. Really old, dirty. And we walk in and we kind of line up on the driving range and we're already getting the looks of everybody. And then they see us hacking up the grass and the looks get even worse. Everybody there is looking down their noses at us. If looks could kill, I would have died as a teenager. And so we felt embarrassed, but we thought, ah, whatever, we're 16, right? When you're 16, you don't care what older people think. And so we hit our balls, mainly hit grass, and then we left. But again, to look down your nose at someone is to say, you don't belong here, but you don't even say it. It's just a look. You don't belong here, or this isn't for you. Well, like the rich man in the story, the Pharisees typically looked down on the poor. And in their thinking, which was very misconstrued, they actually thought that poor people were poor because of their own doing. If they were living the way that God wanted them to, then they would be blessed the way that we are. I think sometimes we might think that way too. We think, oh, they've probably brought this upon themselves. Maybe they have, but guess what? Maybe they haven't. And like the rich man in this story, the Pharisees were living relatively comfortable lives and they were blinded to the needs and the sufferings and the misery of other people around them. And they needed to have a change of heart before it's too late. Now I want to point something out to you. The Pharisees were basically a populist movement. And what I mean by that is that the Pharisees actually weren't the extremely rich of their society. Most Pharisees were kind of like middle class. Some of them were rich, like Joseph of Arimathea. But a lot of them were just kind of more middle class individuals. And the reason I point that out is because it's a good reminder to us that you don't have to be rich to be a lover of money. See, sometimes you read a text like this, and I do it too. And you read, there was a rich man... And in your mind, you go, there was a man in Hope Ranch. There was a man in Montecito. And we disconnect ourselves from this text immediately. We just go, well, I'm not a rich person. But see, the the Pharisees were relatively well off. And in comparison to the Lazaruses of that culture, they were rich. They were doing really, really well. And they were lovers of money. And friends, I want to tell you, most of us in this room, and there are exceptions that I'm aware of, but most of us in this room, you might not live in Montecito. Maybe you do. But you might not live there. Or you might not live in a big house in Hope Ranch. But you're probably, in comparison to most of the world and even many people in our community, you're doing pretty well. And we can't just deflect this and go, oh, this is about the extremely rich people. No, this is about people who have resources and whose hearts are in the wrong place with them. But I won't belabor this point today because we've discussed it at length before. But again, the gospel looks down its nose at no one because the gospel is for everyone. Right, church? The gospel is for everyone everyone. We've called this series Outsiders because in Luke's gospel, he wants to show us Jesus's ministry 
not just to the religious people, but especially to the people who were on the fringes of society, the people that were typically looked down on by others, poor people, women, immigrants, lepers, tax collectors, sinners. Luke wants us to be reminded that Jesus is a savior of all people. So the gospel's for everybody, rich and poor, young and old, white and black and brown and every other skin color on the planet, conservatives and liberals, women and men. And family, listen, this is why it is so beautiful when as much as possible a church reflects in its diversity the diversity of the gospel. This is why it's so beautiful when a church family is comprised of people of different races and ethnicities. When a church family is comprised of people in different socioeconomic places. Where you can literally be sitting worshiping today with somebody who makes six figures or maybe seven figures right next to somebody who's barely above the poverty level. It's a beautiful thing. And when we love one another and we don't judge each other based on those sorts of things, it shows in our church, the truth of the gospel, that the gospel is for everyone. Second thing we learn about the gospel from this parable is this. The gospel changes more than just your thinking. This is so important, family. The gospel changes more than just your thinking. Here's what I mean. Sometimes when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, we think of it like this. We say, to be a Christian is to believe certain things about God, certain things about Jesus. And on one level, that's absolutely true. But listen, the problem with saying that is that we can give the impression that being a Christian is just about sort of checking the right boxes theologically. So you go, okay, I believe in the Trinity, check. I believe in the virgin birth, check. I believe that Jesus died for sins, check. And all of a sudden we think that, again, being a Christian is just about what I think. Listen, being a Christian is about believing those things for sure, but it's actually more because our faith is the thing that allows us to actually take hold of Jesus so that, listen, his spirit actually lives inside of us. And church, when Christ's spirit, the very spirit of God, moves into a person's heart, he does a little bit of redecorating. He does a little rearranging, right? Just like when you move into a new space, if you buy a new house or a new apartment or a new townhome, you don't just walk in and everything stays the same. No, you come in and you move your furniture in. And if it was already furnished, you might move the old stuff out. You might paint, you might tear some things out, move things around. You redecorate that space. Family, when God moves into a person's life, he does some redecorating. And he starts shifting things around. He starts getting rid of the old things, the sinful things, and he starts replacing that with new things, beautiful things, God-like things. See, the gospel changes not just your thinking. It does change that. But it changes your very life. It makes you into a brand new creation, the apostle Paul would tell us. This is all the more true when you think about the Pharisees. Guys, the Pharisees knew the law. If you asked a Pharisee, how do you summarize the law? What matters to God? They could tell you, well, love God and love your neighbor. In fact, you remember when Jesus was being approached by the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers, 
And remember that lawyer says to Jesus, he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, I don't know. What do you think? How do you read the Old Testament? And the lawyer actually said, in summary, he said, love God and love people. And Jesus said, you're right. So, so the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they, they understood this at an intellectual level. Okay, they had good theology, but Jesus was pointing out that the breakdown wasn't necessarily in their thinking. The breakdown was that they weren't actually doing what the law said. And in order for them to do that, they needed a heart transplant. Because the second their hearts changed, they would have cared about a guy like Lazarus. Now, it's possible for somebody to approach this text and read it and think that the rich man's problem is just that he's rich. And so you read it and you go, okay, he had money in the here and now, therefore he gets to be miserable in the hereafter. And you go, and people who are in poverty in the here and now, their suffering's done, so in the hereafter they get to be rich and blessed. But that's not the way that the gospel works. The rich man's problem was not his money per se. Again, like I'm trying to emphasize, his problem, listen, is that the way that he handled his money reveals to us that his heart was far from God. In 1 John 3, 16 through 18, we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And here comes the convicting part. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, here's the question, how does God's love abide in him? And John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk. In other words, don't, don't just love in thought here. Oh, I, I, I think I'm going to take care of you. Or I'll tell you that we should take care of you. But no, 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 love in deed and in truth. Back it up by actually helping people who are in need. Again, the gospel changes more than our thinking. Our good works don't earn our salvation but rather our salvation produces our good works. When God saves a person, when the Spirit moves into a person, He changes us and we begin to be more like Jesus and good works flow out of us. How are we saved then? If it's not by our works, it's by grace through faith and repentance. And this is exactly what the rich man lacked. Notice it's really in the text here, faith and repentance. Down in verse 29, this this rich man, he, like his brothers, needed to hear, or some of your translations say, listen to Moses and the prophets. And then in verse 30, he needed to repent, right? He's saying his brothers will repent if they hear this. Faith and repentance were the things that he lacked and the things that he hoped would change in his brothers. And had he possessed that, he would have cared about Lazarus. Third thing the gospel teaches us from this passage is this. The gospel is a message of reversal. The gospel is a message of reversal. I'm not sure if we have this chart. Let me see if a chart comes up on the screen here. Cue the chart. There it is. Thank you, Rob. I want to show you this reversal that's illustrated in the lives of these two men in the text. For the rich man in his earthly life, he had wealth, fine dress, fine food. We're told that he had his good things. He even had a proper burial. 
But then life in the hereafter. Notice what he received. Torment, thirst, and anguish. Whereas notice Lazarus in his earthly life had poverty, sickness. He had to be laid at the gate because he was so sick. Starvation. He had bad things and he had no burial. And yet in the life to come, he was carried by angels. He, extreme, he experienced rather extreme comfort and blessedness. And this reversal that we see in the text between the rich man and Lazarus is a picture of the reversal that the gospel brings. I want you to listen to the Beatitudes from earlier in Luke chapter 6. Here's Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Listen to the reversal here. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor. How many of us could look at the poor in our community and say, You're so blessed? Jesus could. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And he's speaking to those who were possibly poor financially, but who consider themselves poor spiritually. Verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now. So here's the here and now. For you shall be satisfied. Do you see the reversal? Blessed are you who weep now. So you're crying now. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So you're being ridiculed and rejected and persecuted now. And he's saying, you can rejoice in that because a reversal's coming. You're going to be rewarded in my kingdom. Verse 24, now he's going to turn and cast a bunch of woes. He says, but woe to you who are rich. In context, it's rich and actually taking advantage of people. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, in the hereafter, it's not going to go well for you. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Do you see the reversal that's going to take place through the gospel? That those who are poor in spirit now, those who are humble, those who are giving their lives in sacrificial love toward others now, are going to reap a great harvest and reward then, whereas those who are selfishly living for them now, worried about themselves only, rejecting what God would want, are going to experience misery then. Listen, for the non-Christian, this life is as good as it will ever be. For the non-Christian, just think about that for a moment. This life is as good as it will ever be. So if somebody's going to live their life rejecting God, if that's, if that's where you've made up your mind, you better get everything you can out of this life because it's as good as it's ever going to be for you. But I love this. For the Christian, this life is as bad as it will ever be. Because in the hereafter, God will rectify everything that's gone wrong. In the hereafter for his children, God will grant to you blessedness, happiness, treasures in heaven. Notice with me that the rich man in this story wasn't named, but the poor man was. We know his name's Lazarus. 
See, the rich man was a big shot in the here and now. Everybody in that town knew the rich man. And yet in the, in the life to come, in heaven, he's a no-name. And in this life, nobody knew the poor man, Lazarus. He was an outcast. He was ignored. And yet in the life to come, he's known. He's received by Father Abraham and he's called by name. So those who choose to live sacrificially for others out of the abundance of love that they've received from God will be richly compensated in the life to come. Number four and five are going to come more quickly. The fourth thing we learn about the gospel is that the gospel has a shelf life. The gospel has a shelf life. It's a terrible thing when you're hungry and you need that midnight snack. Does anybody else here get those cravings sometimes? You get yourself out of bed, you walk to the refrigerator, and everything you want, when you pull it out, you look and it's expired. Now, I know some of y'all don't care about that. Okay, I know there are some people who are like expiration dates. Those are like recommendations. Who cares? Pour the milk anyway. Eat the bowl of cereal. You're hungry. You're going to get it now. Some of us look at that like if I, if I consume this product, I am going to get cancer immediately. And so we don't touch it and we run from it. But it's a bad feeling when everything in the fridge and everything in the cupboard is expired, especially when you're hungry. Did you know the gospel has an expiration date on it, so to speak? I mean, from this text, you realize that this rich man in the hereafter, he was crying out for mercy, wasn't he? He was saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to quench my thirst right now. Do something to alleviate my suffering right now. And Father Abraham pointed out to him, there's nothing I can do for you. There's a, as he put it, there's a chasm right now that exists between me and Lazarus and you. And people where you're at, even if they want to cross over to where I'm at, they can't. And people where I'm at, even if we wanted to cross over and help you out, we can't. Father Abraham's gentle here, but he's firm. Essentially what he's saying is, what's done is done. The decisions that you made in your life are actually cemented in eternity. In other words, the life that we're living right now, it's like we make our bed and then we have to sleep in it for all of eternity. Lazarus is here in Abraham's bosom or at Abraham's side and he's experiencing comfort and blessing, but the rich man is here in Hades and he's experiencing deep anguish and torment depicted with the painful experience of extreme thirst. And this interim state that they're in anticipates the final state that all people will be in in either heaven or hell. Again, what's done is done. Fates are sealed here. When you die, time is up. You can't change your mind after you've died and you've gone into God's presence. We'll all stand before him to be judged. And what's so tragic here is that had this rich man called out for mercy during his earthly life, he would have received it. And yet he didn't. And then it was too late. And the point of application for us this morning, church, is that you and I, if you're already a Christian, we need to be urgent with this message. Because there is an expiration date on the gospel. And it's at the point that somebody dies, they have no more time left. And even as a pastor, I can confess to you, I get lethargic with this message. Sometimes I'll share with people and I'll think to myself, oh, I won't think this consciously, but 
It's got to be in my subconscious. I'll think, well, it's not really that big of a deal if they give their life to Christ right now. It actually is. Because like the parable of the rich fool that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that rich man thought he had plenty of years left and Jesus called him a fool because that very night his soul was required of him. One of us could get in an accident on the way home today. Somebody could get sick and not be here next week. We don't know. Everybody's time is limited. Of course, Jesus himself could return. We have to be urgent with this message. Fifth and finally, I love this lesson from this parable. The gospel is all we get and the gospel is all we need. The gospel is all we get and it's all we need. Look at what the rich man said. He said, if God would just send somebody back from the dead to go warn my brothers, they would believe. In other words, if God would just supernaturally reveal himself to my unbelieving family, then I know that they would believe. I've talked to many people like that before. You know, if God would sort of just peek his head out of the clouds, or if God would do something in my life that was so obvious that I couldn't deny it, then I would become a Christian. But if God doesn't do that, maybe he doesn't exist or maybe he doesn't really care about me. But if he would do something supernatural, I would believe. Have you ever heard that before? A lot of you are nodding. You've heard that. I always respond to people who say things like that with probably not. You probably wouldn't believe. Did you know that not every one of the children of Israel believed when God parted the Red Sea? I mean, do you get bigger signs than that? I, I, I don't know if you've had signs from God before, but probably not as big as like the ocean from here to the Channel Islands just splitting and you just taking a walk 25 miles. But, but somehow, some of the children of Israel who saw that miracle actually didn't believe. Did you know that not all of the people who saw Lazarus, not this Lazarus, but another Lazarus, die, get buried in a tomb and get called back out by Jesus? Some of those people didn't believe. Did you know that some of the very people who saw Jesus nailed to a cross on that hill called Golgotha didn't believe when he came back from the dead? Friends, here's the problem. Your presuppositions affect your perception a lot more than you think they do. What I mean by that is if you already have your mind made up, you probably won't change it no matter what happens. If you're a naturalist, if you're somebody who denies the existence of God and you're committed to that, and you hear an audible voice, hello, this is God trying to get a hold of you, you're going to say, I'm hallucinating. If that's what you're committed to and you have a dream or a vision, you're going to say, what was in my drink last night? If you're committed to that view and you see a bright light parting the heavens, you're going to say, it must be a meteor. My point is you're always going to have a way of justifying it. You're always going to have an excuse. And that's the way that human beings are. And so again, the things that you think, your presuppositions actually impact how you process your experiences. So Abraham says, look, if they don't believe the clear teaching of God's word, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, even if one came back from the dead, I'm telling you, they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. The point is the gospel is all we get. But friends, the gospel is all we need. 
Because here's what Paul says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You want to know where the power is at? It's in the gospel. As we preach that message to our non-believing family members, to our non-believing neighbors and friends, the Spirit of God actually takes that message and transforms people. Faith is born, and they put their faith in Jesus, and the Spirit comes inside of them and transforms them. We need to be committed to the gospel. Well, as we close now, I want to just emphasize this, that there are really two tragedies in this text. On the one hand, we have the tragedy of the Lazaruses of the world. And if when reading about Lazarus in this text, and seeing the Lazaruses in your life and in our community here, your heart doesn't break for those people, you need to know this morning that there is something broken in your heart. There's something off. Because if our heart's where it needs to be, then our hearts are going to care. The second tragedy is the rich man. His tragedy is eternal. So if in reading about this text this morning, and in thinking about, excuse me, thinking about people that you might know who are cold and calloused and indifferent to the sufferings of others, and they've rejected the love of God, if something in your heart doesn't break over people like that, Again, friend, you need to know there's something broken in your heart because you're not sharing the heart of God. God cares about lost people, even evil, selfish, lost people like this. So on one level, this parable is another teaching about money. We need to evaluate the way that we're using our resources. But at a more foundational level, we can see that money was actually not this man's deepest problem. His deeper problem was that he was not in right relationship with God and therefore his heart was not toward people like Lazarus. The way he used his money was just a symptom of that bigger problem. Some of us in this room this morning might be mishandling our money. Some of us in this room this morning might be sinning in other ways. Maybe you've been mistreating people. Maybe, you, maybe you've been cheating out your company. Maybe you've just been behaving selfishly. Maybe you're addicted to porn. Maybe you're sinning in some other way. Listen, I want you to know this morning that that's all a symptom of a deeper problem. It's a problem of your heart. And what you need this morning is you need the Spirit of God to either A, give you a heart transplant, if you're not a Christian this morning, or if you are a Christian and your heart's in the wrong place this morning, then at least what you need this morning is a heart check. And so as we close in prayer now, we're gonna pray to both of those ends. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Father, it's likely that no one in this room can walk out this morning thinking, yep, I'm nailing that one. It's likely that all of us, as we think about the different situations that we become aware of through our networks of people or just through the neighborhoods and the communities we live in, as we see these situations, it's likely that most of us are more often indifferent than we are compassionate. Lord, we're so thankful that 
The message of the gospel looks down its nose on no one. We're so thankful that wherever we came from, whatever our background was, whatever our sins were and still are, that Jesus, you loved us in spite of those things and you came and rescued us. And I pray that as a gospel people that we would have hearts like that, that we would be so overwhelmed by the love of God that we ourselves display that love to others. Lord, for any of us this morning that have become painfully aware of certain sins, maybe again, it's sins with our money, but maybe it's other sins. As we've become painfully aware of those things, Lord, I pray for repentance. I pray that we wouldn't hide those sins or continue in them, but that we would turn from them, that we would repent. Because we know if we do, we'll find your mercy and we'll find strength to begin to live a different way, to live the right way. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that's joined us that isn't a Christian, who's never received Jesus by faith, the one who lived the righteous life that we couldn't, the one who died on the cross to take away our sins, the one who rose again three days later to offer us eternal life, I pray that you would give them faith this morning to say, I want to receive you, Jesus. I want your spirit inside of me so that I can have this heart transplant that we've been talking about. Lord, give that faith to any who have joined us today and are not yet believers. Lord, this morning as we go from church, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your mercy. Help us now to display that, to live that out this week, this month, this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.